Uh, verses 1 through 16 of Matthew 26, although we'll be uh, spending uh, most of the time on verses 6 through 13, and I'll explain that uh, after I read the passage here. So Matthew chapter 26, beginning at verse 1, listen now to the reading of God's holy word. Now it came to pass... When Jesus had finished all these sayings, that he said to his disciples, You know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the place of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast lest there be an uproar among the people. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always. But me, you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached, in the whole world, What this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him thirty pieces of silver. So from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. Seek the Lord's blessing on this, His holy word. O gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks for the truth that you have revealed to us through your word, that it is our only infallible rule for faith and life. And as we come to this uh, passage this morning, we pray that your spirit would truly accompany your word to give us understanding, to see the truth that is here, to apply it to our own hearts and our own lives, and to equip us to be faithful witnesses for your glory and we do pray father that as your word goes forth it would find within our hearts that rich fertile uh, soil that will bring about a great and abundant fruit for your glory we ask for your blessing now upon your word in jesus name we pray amen well jesus has concluded the olivet discourse in Matthew 25. And he did so, if you recall, a couple weeks ago, with a challenge to his followers to be faithful in living out their faith by serving him through serving others. And truly, this was a fitting end to the discourse, which began uh, back in chapter 24 with the disciples asking questions about the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the signs of the end of the age and of Christ's return in power and glory. 
Although Jesus addressed those questions regarding the end times, the last part of this important discourse, he's pretty much focused on challenging his disciples to be ready for the time when he does come and to be striving to be faithful in doing what he's called them to do until that time when he comes. Now this emphasis has been an important reminder to us that we're not to be so caught up and distracted by the signs of the times and and wondering about the timing of Christ's return, but that we should be focused on serving Him faithfully and being ready until He comes again in glory at the end of the age. But as we now move to chapter 26, we see the difference between those who are rich in faith, that is, true believers, or the sheep that Jesus mentioned in, at the end of chapter 25, and those who are poor in faith, that is, pretenders, or the goats that he mentioned in, uh, at the end of chapter 25. And we see this uh, difference being played out in the very real events leading up to Jesus' death on the cross. Now, Matthew makes this contrast between these two positions using a literary device that's akin to a sandwich. Usually a a sandwich typically has a, you know, you have a piece of bread and then you uh, have your meat and your cheese and then you have another piece of bread on top. Well, Matthew begins talking about those who are poor in faith. That is the Jewish religious leaders. And then he inserts, in the middle of the account, he inserts this account of a woman who anoints Jesus with oil as an example of one who is rich in faith. And then he uh, concludes that uh, by returning once again to the poor in faith with Judas and the religious leaders. And so as we try to unpack this sandwich, we're going to, to focus our attention today on what we consider the the meat of the sandwich. And so that's why we're going to be focused on verses 6 through 13. And then, Lord willing, next week we'll consider the bread at each end, which is verses 1 to 5, and then verses 14 to 16. And in verses 6 to 13, we're given this example of a woman who is rich in faith as she seeks to show her love and devotion to Jesus before his death. The first thing that we want to do is get a picture of the setting and the the timing of these events. Now, verse 1 to 5 likely occurred late on Tuesday evening or very early Wednesday morning of that last week of Jesus' uh, earthly ministry. And then the events of verses 14 and 16 would be uh, sometime uh, shortly after that. But what about... The verses we're considering today, the verses 6 through 13. While reading Matthew's account, it just seems to flow right into the same timeline. But if we were to turn to John and his gospel, in John uh, uh, chapter 12, John places this anointing actually on the previous Saturday evening, the evening before the triumphal entry. And uh, it's, he even notes there specifically that it was six days before the Passover. So we have this question, well, when did this anointing take place? Well, we have to keep in mind that though the gospel writers generally arrange their material in in chronological fashion, bringing the reader from uh, typically from the birth of Jesus in the beginning, 
And then you have the, uh, his public ministry in the, middle, in the middle of the Gospels. And then at the end, of course, it focuses on his death and resurrection. And that's generally, again, as you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all kind of have that same progression. But there are times when the writers of the Gospels, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, will arrange the material with less emphasis on chronology in order to emphasize a particular theme or subject. Well, this seems to be the case here with Matthew uh, verses, uh, 26, verses 6 to 13. Though, again, he's still following a general chronology, but for the purpose of demonstrating this contrast between those who are rich and those who are poor in faith, he inserts this earlier event between the two more chronologically aligned events. Now, not only does this highlight the the contrast and really uh, make that distinction very sharp between the faithful and the unfaithful, but it also helps to make the connection between the plot of the religious leaders in the first five verses and then the actions of Judas. Because we may wonder, well, how did Judas suddenly turn and betray him? Well, we'll see that John's account, again, is especially helpful to show that this anointing by this woman actually ended up being perhaps the final trigger event that sent Judas down his path of betrayal and treachery. And so even though it happened a few days before, Matthew inserts it here to help us make this connection between the plot and then how they were able to align themselves with one of Jesus' disciples. Well, what about the location? See in verse 6 that when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. Now, Bethany was a small town uh, about two miles east of Jerusalem on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And so obviously finishing the discourse and then going, they, they would have gone to the, uh, to the Mount of Olives. Over the Mount of Olives, going to Bethany. And that was likely the place where Jesus uh, went uh, each night to, uh, to spend uh, the night during his time in Jerusalem, uh, gathered there for the feast. Now we don't know who Simon the leper was, other than that he was likely no longer a leper. Maybe he was at one point. He became known as Simon the leper. Well, uh, if he was still a leper, well then he wouldn't be able to ha- host people at his house. And so it seems very possible that Simon uh, had previously been healed by Jesus. He had, had been a leper, been perhaps for a long time, but Jesus healed him. And now he's showing gratitude to the Lord for that healing by hosting him and his disciples. And so aside from Jesus, uh, from Simon and the 12 disciples, again, John in his account tells us that Lazarus was also there. And this would be the same Lazarus that just the day or so before Jesus had raised from the dead. And along with Lazarus were his sisters, Martha. Martha was the one who was always busy serving. And then, of course, the other sister, Mary. Mary, who was known for being closely attentive to Jesus' teaching. And so drawing off the accounts of both Matthew and John and, and even Mark, to a certain extent, we see that Mary is very likely this unnamed woman that uh, anoints Jesus with the oil. But it's interesting 
the fact that, I mean, John names her, but Matthew leaves her unnamed, even though he would have known who she was. But that in itself is, is significant, again, to further emphasize this contrast. You have an unnamed woman who's going to do a great deed of faithful devotion that Jesus is going to commend. Whereas those who are notoriously poor in faith, both the high priest, who's named in verse 3, Caiaphas, and then at the end you have the betraying close friend and disciple, Judas, who's named in verse 14. In between there's this unnamed faithful woman. It's truly the honor bestowed upon the faithful that though the Lord surely knows their names, their deeds are remembered by others far more than their names. Because Mary's whole purpose of doing this was to glorify God and not to make herself known. But it's truly the great shame of the wicked that their deeds become inseparable from their names as a testimony against them. And so what good and faithful deed does this unnamed woman, which we know is Mary, what does she do? Well, in verse 7, she came to Jesus having an alabaster flask, a very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. Now, alabaster was a, a polished gypsum and was uh, used to make uh, jars and flasks. And it was especially uh, often used to hold all these kinds of precious oils. And it's likely that the flask itself was an expensive heirloom, finely crafted to hold this expensive oil, which both Mark and, and John tell us in their accounts was, was pure nard. That is, it was an aromatic oil taken from an eastern herb. So it wasn't a native oil of the area, which again, then would have increased its value. And then John adds that there was about a pound of it. So we have the value increasing even more. And then again, both Mark and John place the value. Actually, they, they uh, note that it's Judas who uh, places the value at 300 denarii. Tianjinari was the equivalent of a year's wage. And so with such a costly oil and such a fine crafted jar, you would think that, that it would only be used on very special occasions, if at all. Which makes Mary's actions here all the more dramatic. Now Matthew <coughs> simply says that she poured the oil on Jesus' head, but Mark tells us that she actually first broke the flask, rendering it unusable for further purposes, and then she poured the contents over Jesus' head. And again, since it was a pound, well, there was obviously enough for it to run down on Jesus' neck, onto his shoulders, and even down to his feet. Whereas again, John tells us that then Mary used her hair to... Uh, spread the oil on, uh, wave the oil off Jesus' feet. And so Jesus was, was covered with this oil. And not only that, but, but since it was a fragrant oil, the aroma would have quickly filled the room and the house. 
it certainly was an act that didn't go unnoticed. Though it may come across to us as kind of a greasy, smelly mess, for Mary, it was a pure act of love and devotion. And even one which she may not have fully understood, as we'll soon see. Now, oil was often presented uh, to guests uh, so that they could refresh themselves, especially if they'd been traveling and they spent the whole a day in the hot, dry, uh, dusty environment of, of the Middle East. And so in this sense, Mary offered something very customary to Jesus. A very small gesture of, of kindness that would be offered to, to really any guest. And as Jesus had just instructed his disciples, again back in the end of chapter 25, when they faithfully show even the smallest kindness to the least of their brethren, will they show kindness and love to him. Well, Mary's actions here are, are magnified all the more. Because not only did she show such a simple kindness to Jesus himself, but she did so with a most generous portion of very expensive oil. And truly, we can imagine that her kindness came at a great cost, a, a, certainly a, a financial cost. And so this certainly didn't go unnoticed, especially not by the disciples, who didn't look so kindly on this rather kind gesture. Verse 8 9, But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. Now again, Matthew tells us that the disciples joined together to issue this complaint. But again, John adds a bit more detail in revealing that it was actually Judas who at least made the initial charge. And so it's likely that Judas indicated uh, or initiated the criticism uh, with his comment about the wasteful action, and then thinking this was a valid criticism, the rest of the disciples just quickly jumped on the bandwagon, and they agreed with, with Judas' estimation of discontent and even anger. Hey, Matthew says that they were indignant. That is, they were really, really upset. And especially him. That is, Judas. Now, it seems a little petty to get so upset by something so trivial. Right? It's, just, it's just perfume or oil, after all. And it, it wasn't even theirs. It was Mary's. Now, certainly if it belonged to the twelve, and Mary took it upon herself to, uh, to make use of it in this way, or maybe if it was something that somebody had donated to the group to, uh, to sell and, and distribute to the poor, well then yes, they would have just cause to be all bent out of shape and angry about it. But it was Mary's oil. It was hers to use as she saw fit. Now before we jump all over the disciples, can we for a moment just honestly look at ourselves for a moment? Isn't it often the trivial things that get us upset and and bent out of shape, even indignant. 
Even when it's something that doesn't really have to do with us. Even when we see someone who in our estimation is, is wasting something, and what they're wasting isn't ours. Or we're quick to make a judgment and level a criticism when someone does something we wouldn't do. And of course we have no idea about their motivation or their reasoning. We don't know their hearts. Sometimes, really all the time, if we would take the time to pause and even inquire before jumping to criticism, well, we might not make such fools of ourselves. And this is precisely what the disciples do. They made fools of themselves because as they're looking at this situation, all they see was waste. Why this waste? And you can almost hear them protesting. If you're going to use this oil, then use it for something good, something beneficial for the common good, something that would be long-lasting. Again, we noted this oil is very expensive. And certainly a year's worth of wages was a lot. Imagine just pouring out that kind of value for something so trivial and so common. She might as well have just poured it out on the ground. They were truly disgusted by what they saw as waste. And they take the disgust uh, disgust a step further, and they even offer a good alternative. One that would have been more practical, wise, and, and certainly a better use of such a valuable asset. They say it could have been sold and given to the poor. Now again, we have to pause here for a moment and remember that Judas is the one leading this criticism. He, more than the other disciples, seems to be very concerned for the poor. That's great. But again, John gives us a bit more detail that explains not only Judas' keen interest in all this, but also the reason, perhaps, as to why he's so angry. John 12, verse 6, referring to Judas' Judas' comment, this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. You see, Judas was the treasurer among the disciples. He was responsible for carrying the money box, and yet he was a thief. And so the real reason appears as to why he's so upset is that he's seeing 300 less denarii that that he would have had the opportunity to pilfer and steal. It's now gone. Poured out on the ground. Of course, at this point, the other disciples, they don't know a Judas' ulterior motives, and so they simply just chimed in their agreement to his proposal. After all, Judas was making what sounded like a very sound, Christian, love thy neighbor, take care of the poor and needy kind of argument. Right? We, we, yeah, we, we want to be concerned about the poor and the needy. That's a great idea, Judas. Boy, this, this guy is, he's just loves this, the poor and he wants to serve. What a great example. And it's true that the proceeds from this oil could have helped hundreds of poor people with food and clothing and shelter. 
Think of all those who could have benefited from this ministry. But now it's gone. It's all gone. There's not a drop left. What a waste. To the disciples, Mary had her priorities all wrong. She should have been more like Judas. She wasn't thinking beyond herself. She had wealth and riches, at least in this little bottle. But she didn't share from her abundance to help the poor and the needy. You have to wonder, hadn't she been listening to Jesus? His teaching about being a servant and seeking to minister in His name to those in need? Again, so much could have been done with this. Certainly it could have been put to a much better use. So again, what a terrible, shameful waste. And Mark notes in his account that the disciples even scolded her. Literally just kind of flared their nostrils and, and kind of snorted at her because they were so angry with her. But there's another issue. Perhaps some of their anger, the disciples' anger, perhaps it was actually meant to be directed at Jesus. You see, up to this point, Jesus has been silent. He didn't, Jesus didn't protest the use of the oil. He didn't join in with Judas and the other disciples in condemning her. So you wonder, well, what's up with that? Why isn't he saying anything? Well, obviously the disciples aren't going to go there and challenge Jesus. So they channel their anger to Mary. But even in doing so, you would think in his humanity... And even in his divinity, Jesus had to sense a bit of the sting. You see, for in criticizing and scolding Mary and condemning her wasteful use of the oil, they're also in, uh, indirectly condemning and devaluing Jesus. And she used the oil for a certain purpose, even a common one, by pouring it over Jesus. And they called it a waste. Aren't they really implying that Jesus isn't worthy of such kindness by one who is utterly devoted to him, even though it was a most honorable kindness given the value of the oil? Hadn't they listened to what Jesus had just taught them about the faithful sheep who will receive great honor at his right hand when he comes in the, in the glory of his kingdom, all because they showed a small kindness to the least of their brothers? And by doing so, they were actually showing a small kindness to Jesus. Obviously, that lesson hadn't sunk in. The disciples were missing something. And so in response, Jesus, hearing what they're saying, has a strong rebuke for the disciples. And it certainly wasn't what they were expecting. Why do you trouble this woman? Basically, leave her alone. Don't bother her. Don't judge her. Don't criticize her. They had to be stunned when he responded with this. Here they're filled with self-righteous indignation and Jesus turns the situation around and condemns them for not only their harsh treatment of Mary, but also their lack of understanding. 
Indeed, they had missed something great. They were the ones who were not paying attention to Jesus' teaching. Jesus continues, For she has done a good work for me. He's saying, You say it was a waste, but I say it was actually a good work, even a beautiful work. And so Jesus has a very different perspective on the situation. She hasn't wasted the oil. In fact, she has done something quite the opposite with it. She has perfumed a, uh, performed a good deed. And again, some translations might have there, beautiful. They called it waste and rubbish. And Jesus calls it beautiful. Viewing this situation from different angles is certainly an understatement. But how often do we make perhaps the same mistake? Calling something rubbish. And yet we come to find out that it's actually something quite beautiful and of, and of great worth, at least to someone else. It's kind of like that old wisdom of the yard sale. One person's junk is another person's treasure. But perhaps you've made the same mistake, not about things, but about people. Being quick to judge them and cast them aside as, as rubbish. And yet find out that they too are a beloved child of the King. And they're your brother or sister in Christ. They may not seem lovely to you. But in God's eyes, they're beautiful. Now of course we know that God has an act for loving and declaring beautiful that which is unlovely and that which is ugly even ourselves, in our own sin. Paul says in Romans 5.8, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were ugly and unlovely and unlovable, and yet Christ still died for us and gave His life for us. And so again, we should be cautioned about being hasty in our judgments. Well, Jesus now clarifies why this deed was so good and beautiful. First, he does so by contrasting not so much between the poor and himself, but between always and not always. Verse 11, For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. And we know not only from Jesus' overall teaching, but really uh, from all the scripture, that God's people are charged to take care of those who are poor and needy. In fact, Jesus here is actually likely making reference to Deuteronomy 15, verse 11, which says this, For the poor will never cease from the land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor, and your needy in your land. So here the command is clearly to care for the poor and not to neglect them. And it's clear that these words of Scripture have been true throughout history and even now continue to be true. The poor will always be here. There will always be those who have and those who have not. And since they'll always be here, well, you'll have ample time to serve and minister to them in any way you can. And again, this is our Christian duty, which Christ calls, to, calls us to do. But in the case of the disciples, they neglected to take heart Jesus' warnings 
that he had now come to Jerusalem to suffer and die. His days were truly numbered. They won't always have Jesus there with them, at least not in his state of humiliation, in his, um, in his uh, physical earthly presence. And so now is the time that they should be honoring Him and spending their time doing something, as Mary had, to prepare and commemorate His death. They must remember that caring for the poor is important. And it is their duty, but their allegiance belongs first and foremost to their Savior and what He would have them to do. They were actually tempted to follow a a social gospel, right? Similar to what swept through uh, many churches in the late 19th and early 20th century, where they focused so much on trying to, to get rid of all these societal ills. But in doing so, they neglected the true spiritual needs and failed to proclaim the true gospel, which can alone deliver from those ills. And so here again, it's the disciples who have the priorities all wrong. Well, the second way that Jesus clarifies that this is a beautiful, good act was by pointing to the intended purpose in verse 12. He says, For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. So Mary was preparing Jesus for his burial. Now, Jesus was about to, to die and to suffer the death of a criminal. Right? Crucifixion was for criminals. And often the criminals, <coughs> after they died, they were just thrown into a heap, and many didn't receive a proper burial. So Mary was seeing to it that this was accomplished, because maybe there wasn't going to be time. Now many commentators are divided over how much Mary actually understood regarding what she had done. Right? She may not have fully understood the true kindness of her action. She may have just been thinking that this was just a common, customary, kind gesture. But it can't be denied that Mary was known for paying very close attention to Jesus' teaching. And certainly she knew that his time was drawing near. Remember, it was Mary who sat intently at Jesus' feet while her sister Martha was busying herself around the house. Mary may very well understood that Jesus would soon be put to death and her devotion and faith in Him led her to not waste the time, but to make very real preparations. The disciples thought that she was ignorant because she wasted the oil. But they were the ones who were ignorant of true devotion and service to their Savior. They were the ones wasting their time bickering and puffing themselves up with self-righteousness. It's interesting to note regarding what Mary did here. We know that on the morning of the resurrection, that several women went to the tomb to do that traditional anointing of the body and to prepare it for burial because they didn't have time to do it before because the Sabbath was approaching. But it was never done. 
Right? They went there with that purpose. They had bought the spices and the oils and all that would, they were needed, but they never got to do it. Because Jesus had already risen from the dead. And indeed, he had already received the proper burial preparation thanks to Mary and her faithful, kind deed. And so she was truly rich in faith. And her devotion to her Savior was certainly not a waste. And Jesus makes the contrast between her deed and the behavior of the disciples very firm as he commends her with a great reward. Verse 13, Assuredly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. So wherever in the world the gospel is preached, and of course there's no doubt in Jesus' mind that the gospel would be preached throughout the world, but everywhere the gospel is proclaimed, her deed would be remembered. Not necessarily her name, but her faithful and devoted deed will be remembered. Because it was done in faith to exalt and honor her Savior and not herself. Beloved of God, this is true and it continues to be true. Even right at this moment, as the gospel is is being proclaimed, we are remembering Mary's devotion to her Savior. So what Jesus said is, is coming true right now. And she'll be remembered because she recognized that devotion and service to Jesus is worth far more than any expensive oil, more than any worldly goods, even more than her own good works to others. Because there's really nothing that we could ever give or do that would match what Jesus Christ has done for us and for those who have trusted in Him alone for salvation. Beloved of God, this is the great challenge for us. And truly, may the Spirit of God so empower each of you so that your faith and devotion to Jesus Christ will be as rich and as generous, not for your own recognition, but to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks for your truth and your word and the challenge to truly be faithful, to rely on your grace as we strive to live holy and righteous lives, that we would always keep you at the forefront in whatever we do, serving you as you have called us and commanded us. We know that it comes at a great cost. Sometimes that cost will be financial. Sometimes it'll be a cost of comfort or even health. It may even come at the cost of our life. And yet we acknowledge that none of these things are more valuable than the eternal life that you have secured for us through Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. We praise you and thank you, O God, for all that Christ has done for us. And we would ask, Father, that you would truly pour out your Spirit upon us, that you would help us to be such faithful servants who desire to bring glory to your name, even even when others might mock, when they may criticize, but that we would just be focused upon you 
and seeking to serve you and glorify you. Not to, not to lift up our own name, not to, to make a big name for ourselves, to be honored by others, but to bring all glory and honor and praise to your name alone. Father, this is our prayer. And we pray that you would be gracious and pleased to use us, such bro- broken and shattered vessels as we are, to bring glory to your name in such a way. We pray for your blessing in these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.